morning, everyone. <laughs> My name is Jackson Holt, and I'm the pastoral intern here at True Life. And I'm filling in for Pastor Jimmy today because he's actually off at a, another church, and he's going to be teaching over there because they asked for his help. So while we're uh, discussing God's Word today, please keep him in your minds and in your prayers that God would use him uh, to build up and edify the church. So we're going to be starting to a new sermon series today. But I would want to welcome you, especially if you're a guest. Um, we're very glad that you came today, and you came on a very good day because we're starting kicking off a new series. It's called The Faith That Stands and The Faith That Falls, and it's a study through the book of Jude. And throughout the book of Jude, you have this overarching theme to contend for the faith. And notice that I said the faith, not our faith. What this term that is used throughout the New Testament uh, signifies is the fundamentals of the faith, if you will, the fundamentals of Christianity or the basic doctrines of Christianity. And in times like this, it is of the utmost importance that we know how to contend for the faith because there are a plurality of different religions that all have their own specific objections to why Christianity isn't the one true way. And you also have different philosophies such as just go do whatever you uh, want as long as it makes you happy. We have all these different views and opinions that all bring different objections to Christianity, so it's important that we know how to contend for Christianity. And I even got to experience some of these philosophies and ideas last week. I was in Nashville working at a fireworks show, uh, the Nash I worked with Pyro Shows, and we set up the Nashville Fireworks Show, a show in Hendersonville, and also in Gallatin, Tennessee. And that was probably the hardest I've ever worked in my life. Well, like, I think when, by the time it was said and done, it was like 84 hours that week. A lot of work. Um, but during the time, I got to meet a lot of new people, a lot of uh, friendly people and stuff. And I even got to share the gospel with a few of the people uh, that I was with down there. And there was this one guy who had a very interesting view of the Bible. And we talked and got to share the gospel with him. And by the end of it, he said he would have to take what I said into consideration. And then he'd make a decision about it later. But the other gentleman that I talked to was probably the most respectable like person that I've ever had a, a gospel encounter with. He would flat out told me that he wasn't a believer, which I appreciated, that he was honest. And throughout the conversation, he was being very respectful. There was even one thing that made me laugh because he accidentally said a very crude word because something that had happened. And he goes, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I know you're a pastor. I'm sorry. <laughs> so... That made, like, it made me smile and stuff like that, but he's a very respectable gentleman. But by the very end of our conversation, he kept saying that, I feel like I have more time before I make a decision about that. And we have a fundamental of the faith that we know Jesus is coming back, but we don't know when he's coming back. And so it's important that we know the fundamentals so like that, so not only that we contend against other religions, but we have an answer and a case for Christ to the people that don't know what they believe yet. And don't have an opinion. So it's very important that we know those things. And so that's why we're going to be talking about this over the next few weeks. Today we're going to be setting up the sermon series and only going over the two first verses. This is actually something that the passage I got to choose. I made a joke in the first service that Pastor Jimmy gave me the hardest passage to preach on. And obviously that wasn't true. But this is a passage when I first looked at it uh, going over. I was thinking to myself, I hope that Pastor Jimmy doesn't assign this passage to me because I don't want to do it. This looks really hard. But after studying it, when I was making my outline for the series, I ended up coming to choosing this like myself. And I kind of realized that God does have a little bit of a sense of humor with those types of things. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about our common salvation. Because if we're 
going to contend for our faith, this is where it has to start. Because we're not going to contend for something that we're not a part of. Okay, so if we're not a part of in the faith, if we're not believing in Jesus Christ, we're not going to take the persecution and all the criticism that's going to come with contending for the faith. And we're not going to be able to contend for the faith if we're not rooted and grounded in our salvation. So, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the first chapter of Jude, and the only chapter of Jude, in verses 1 and 2. And it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept through Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So, I'd like to start the message off today by asking a question to set some context. Who was Jude? Well, he identifies himself in two ways in this introduction, and he says he's a servant of Christ and a brother of James. And the James that he's speaking of is believed by most scholars and theologians that he's speaking of the half-brother of Jesus, which would make Jude the half-brother of Jesus. And so, if you understand, you should understand the weight of this was a brother that he's calling a he's calling himself a servant of. I have 11 siblings, and so I understand when I see another sibling calling them, identify themselves as a servant to another, that holds some weight with me. I can't tell you how many times my four-year-old brothers would hold me down, hog-tie me with a bell, or do something of that sort just so they would get me to call them the emperor or something like that. The emperor thing was mostly from my older brother, Bradley, and he didn't even do it to the brothers. He also did it to most of my sisters, too. So he was just ruthless. Now, I will say, I do love my brother, and he's a great man and that kind of thing, but the guy's an animal. So, <laughs> But so the fact that he is identifying himself as a servant to his brother does hold weight. And if you, don't, if you have siblings and still don't understand the weight of this, it's probably because you were the one doing the terrorizing. You were the one doing that, like, headlocking and all that kind of stuff, and that means you never had that happen to you. That's the only thing that would make sense to me. But the fact that he's doing this, it does hold weight. But I want us to understand another aspect of this. Jude wasn't always a servant of Jesus Christ. He and the rest of his family actually thought that Jesus was out of his mind. So in Mark chapter 3, you see Jesus doing all kinds of things. Like he heals people, he teaches great crowds, he appoints the apostles to ministry, and does all these things. And it's kind of hard to know if these things are chronological, like they happen right after one another, or if there's a few days in between, or a week or two. Because how Mark wrote his gospel was he got um, eyewitness accounts from a plurality of people, but mainly Peter is what most believe. And then he put all of those accounts together to create his gospel. And so basically what you have in Mark is just an action-packed gospel, an action-packed story almost. And so after Jesus does all these things, sometime after, whether it be a few days or a week, uh, you find what he says in verse uh, 20 and 21 in chapter 3. He says, Then he went on home talking about Jesus, and it was to Nazareth. And, he said, and then it says, And they, a great crowd, gathered again. And then so they could not even eat. And so what I kind of imagine when I hear that is almost something like when Jesus fed the 5,000, because you had a great crowd that gathered it was getting dark, they couldn't eat, the disciples were worried, asking about Jesus, what are we supposed to do, how are we going to feed these people, are we supposed to send them out, are we supposed to go and use our money to do it, but it was a hectic situation, and so you have this thing set up here, but then in verse 21 it says, and when his family uh, heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind, so Jude wasn't a, always a servant of Christ because he's just some petty sibling having some rivalry. He legitimately thought 
that Jesus was out of his mind. The Greek word that is used there is mentally insane. So then the question is, why would someone in their right mind identify themselves to a whole congregation, a whole church, a whole group of people, identify themselves as a servant to someone who's mentally insane? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, would you do anything like that? And so what you see is this whole other aspect, and you have to ask what happened in Jude's life to make this transformation happen. And most people use this as evidence for the resurrection. What else would change his mind from saying that all the things that Jesus was doing, he's just out of his mind, people don't need to follow him, and going all these things to a person that's identifying as a servant. I might be crazy for saying this, and I might be crazy for thinking this, but I assume if you see someone that you think is crazy saying that they're going to die a specific way and then rise from the dead, and you actually witness that happen, you witness them dying, and then you witness see them again walking, that might change your view of the person just a little bit. That holds weight. And so Jude identifies himself as a servant of Christ and a brother of James. I believe that Jude had the appropriate, appropriate response to the resurrection. <clears throat> and so after he identifies himself, he then identifies the audience that he's speaking to. And so he says three things to identify them. He said to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He says called, beloved, and kept. Some of you may notice that is almost an outline of how we would describe salvation. We're called to salvation, we're loved, being sanctified in God's love, and we're preserved until we'll be glorified. And so out of that description and out of his identification that he's given to us, I'd want to point out three things that apply to us. And that is, number one, as Christians, we are called to salvation. Number two, God's love has given us everything we need to live out that salvation. And number three, Jesus preserves that salvation that he's given to us. So point number one, as Christians, we are called to salvation. The word that Jude uses, called, is a, or refers to the effectual calling of God. And a, a definition of that is the work of God's spirit in the heart of a sinner. In that God convicts the individual of their sin and misery, enlightens their mind to the knowledge of Christ, renewing their will in both persuading and enabling them to embrace Jesus Christ, who is freely offered to us in the gospel. This also can be much simply understood in that it's God's sovereign drawing to or of a sinner to salvation. I prefer the second one. The first definition kind of makes my head spin sometimes. <laughs> So you see examples of this all throughout the Bible. This isn't just some theological framework that people just try to sell. You see examples through this all throughout the New Testament in passages like Philippians 2.13 when it talks about God having a work in us so that our will would be to act to fulfill his purpose. You also see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, which speaks of God granting people repentance by leading them or drawing them to the knowledge of the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. So you see examples of this throughout uh, Scripture. And I want us to understand what a blessing that this is, that God would draw sinners and those who are wicked to himself to salvation. Because if he wouldn't do this himself, we would never choose salvation. Jesus even says this himself. No one, he says in John 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. And most people, when they hear that, well, they ask the question, well, why can't anyone come to Jesus unless someone draws him? And that is because the natural disposition of our hearts is inclined to choose sin instead of God. Ephesians says that no one seeks God, and that is a phrase that is used from Isaiah all the way through the Old Testament in Romans and in multiple of, of the books of the Bible. And Ephesians also says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, which means that we're incapable to choose God. Jeremiah even says that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. So why would something that's deceitfully wicked or desperately wicked choose something that's holy and perfect? Those things don't coincide. So why would want something wicked want to end itself? So no one can come to salvation unless he is drawn by God first. Thanks be to God that he was merciful enough to draw sinners and to draw the wicked to himself to salvation. So, how does this call flesh out? Does it something more like God calls a person in hopes that they come to salvation? Almost like it's a fisherman, he goes to a pond, and he starts throwing out different baits and hoping that maybe one might bite eventually. Or is God's calling something in effect that will draw a sinner to repentance. The Bible indicates the second. In John chapter 6, verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He's basically saying all that the Father draws to me, all that he gives to me, they will come, they will come to Jesus. And he says again in John chapter uh, 10 when he's speaking to the disciples, verse 16, he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So they will be of one flock and have one shepherd. He says, they will listen to my voice. Not they'll ponder it over for a little while, nor think about all the other possibilities. He said, they will listen to my voice. And they will be of one flock and have one shepherd. He even makes another reference to this later in the chapter. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and they come and follow me. This is not something that is going on and they decide about it and all this kind of stuff. He says, when they hear my voice, they will come. Now, I would like to answer an, uh, an objection that people have when they hear something like this. They often, the thing that they go to is, well, if this is true, does this mean that we're all kind of robots and it doesn't really matter? There's not a choice that we actually have. It's just almost predestination, stuff like that. And that is a complete misunderstanding of what's being said here. Because it's not necessarily the fact that there is a sinner that we're setting up, almost like a cartoon character that's saying, I don't want Jesus, I don't want Jesus, I'm not going to be saved, I don't want to. And God just snaps his fingers and then something happens where he now just starts believing in God. It's not what we're saying. But what this is saying, like through Philippians and Timothy, that God does work in a person starts making a change inside of their heart and drawing them and guiding them to the truth that is found in Jesus Christ to where they themselves will make a choice to follow Jesus. And I know this can be hard to understand, and I know I've heard a few different analogies and stuff, but every one that I've kind of thought of kind of broke down. And then I even tried to make my own analogy for this purpose, and I thought of every childhood story that I could think of and couldn't think of a single one to, <laughs> like, use. And if you 
don't really under get that get that reference. I come from a family of 12, so growing up was a party, and I have a lot of childhood stories that I could try to use for different sermon, sermon illustrations, but not this one. But something that I will leave you with is a summary that I actually heard from Pastor Jimmy. It's God is sovereign and man is responsible. And in this case, God calls us to salvation. He has a call that's sent out, and man is held responsible to how they answer to that call. We're the sovereignty and the choice align, I don't know. And I don't think anyone will have a perfect and in full understanding of where that line is. But the fact is that both of these things are in the Bible. And I don't want to sit here and debate about which view, if like Calvinism is right or Arminianism, I don't want to do that. But what I do want us to understand is we have comfort in the fact that we were called by God. That God thought about us before the ages and had a plan for salvation before anything began and he had a plan for salvation he's drawn us to himself when we were people that were constantly spinning in his face sinning on the daily that we were desired nothing but wickedness he loved us so much that he called us to himself and for his glory now point number two that i'd like to talk about is god's love has given us everything we need to live out that salvation so we're called to salvation and God's given us everything we need to live out that salvation. So I'd like to start off uh, this by asking the question, what does it mean to be loved by God? And I came to this question as I was actually studying this passage. And what I would like to do today is walk you through how I came to my answer. And so the first thing that I wanted to see in answering this question, I wanted to see an example of God's love displayed. And so I went to probably the most well-known Bible verse ever, John 3.16, and it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, ever, or but have eternal life. So the gift of God here, the gift of his love is eternal life. And he paid a very high price to get eternal life. He gave up the most valuable person who's ever existed to get this. So I started thinking, well, what is eternal life and what makes this so valuable? And so I turn to John chapter 17 uh, when Jesus was praying in the garden. And he says this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And it was kind of at this point where I started putting two and two together. So the point of God's love, what the gift that he gave us, is for us to know and to have a relationship with him for eternity. And then I started thinking, well, love, you want if you love someone, you want what's best for them. No matter if it hurts your feelings, you want to give them all your time, your efforts, you want to do whatever you can for that person. And so then I started thinking, all right, so God's the best thing that's ever existed. He is the Lord of Lords, the author of creation. He was the person that literally spoke everything into existence and holds everything in existence in his hands. You're not going to get any better. He's not continually getting better. He's already the best. So if loving someone is giving them your best and always choosing to do what's best for them, what's the best thing that God could do for us? Give, him him, give us himself and allow us to know and to have a relationship with him. Well, I know some of you might be thinking, well, how does that give us everything we need to live out salvation? And that comes with the understanding that Everything that we need to live out salvation is in Christ. That's what comes with that understanding. And this implies that 
whatever hardship that we go through, we can find what we need to get through it in Christ. And one of the hardships that I went through, probably the very first hardship that I went through as a believer, was the death of my two-week-year-old nephew. And one of the things that made Holton's death, that's what his name was, so hard, was while he was sick and at the hospital, I trusted God so much that he was going to let him live. And so when he, when he didn't, I almost felt betrayed by God. And it made it so hard to see to where I even ran from God for a little while. And there was times that I was so selfish in my walk and speaking out of hurt that I even told God, I don't really want Jesus right now. I want my nephew back. This is what, that was something that I had prayed, and I hate to admit that. And then, but I realize now that going through those hardships, coming out of that, you grow closer to Christ. So in hardships, when you go through them, you grow closer to Christ. And just because you're going through that hardship, sometimes it feels like God's not there, but he's with you through the whole time. And so growing closer to Christ is a way of God loving you. And it is the best way for God to love you because if he gives you something else, like if he, even if he would have given me my nephew back, he was holding out on me if he didn't give him himself. And so I do understand now that, yes, he did take my, or my sister's son, and that was a horrible thing to go through for me and my family, but he gave me his. And he gave me everything that I needed to get through that situation. And now looking back, having this understanding, you can see Christ all through the times where you couldn't when you're going through it. My small group came and brought us dinner the night that it happened. There were multiple people that come and checked up on my family. There are a lot of family friends that I know a lot to because they even, just not even after, directly when it happens, there are multiple people checking up on me months and months after. And I can say that for multiple of my siblings, we had people like that. And so it's not necessarily that we get to see physical Christ just pop up right there. We get to see him work through other people. And in that, we get to grow closer to him, and that's him giving us everything we need. But not only does he give us himself, he even gives them things within himself. In verse, in verse 2 of Jude, it says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This was Jude sending out a prayer to his audience and saying for these things to be multiplied in their life. And these are things that you can find within Christ, and these are things that Christ does for and in us. So, <coughs> we have everything that we need in God's love to live out the salvation that he's given us. Any hardship, we don't have to worry about because he's there with us. He's given everything that he needs. And he not only does that, this is something that I forgot to mention in the first service. He understands when we're hurting. He sympathizes with us when we're hurting. And so that makes something to us much more of a comfort that he loves us enough that when he was here on the earth, he understands all the hurts, all the trials, the temptations, and he's able to sympathize with us while we're hurting. And that's something that is a huge comfort, to know that I just don't have a God that's super far off and in the distance and just doesn't really care about me, doesn't really care about what I'm going through. He's right there the whole time, and he's going through it with me. He's not just saying, you got it, buddy, you're cheering off in the stands while I'm running the race. He's right there running beside me. And not only that, he's enabling me to run because he is our strength and he is our motivation and he's our security. That's all I'd like to talk about next. And point three, Jesus preserves the salvation that he gives to us. And what I would like to do here is give us four examples of what it means to be kept for Christ. The first one, 
No one can take us away from Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28, and this is eternal life, that they know you. Oh, wait, sorry. This is the wrong verse. I copied and pasted it. I'm going to read it off the screen. My bad. <laughs> I did that in the first service, too. So uh, I give them eternal life, and no one, or, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And so when I read this verse, it makes me think of a time in youth group, way back when I was in middle school. And there was this kid that legitimately had anxiety because he was worried about someone putting, like, the classic thing of someone putting a gun to your head and saying, deny Christ and you'll live in that kind of situation. Well, he was afraid that if the person did that to him and he failed, then that person would take his salvation. And that was a legitimate say, like worry for him. He even worried about, he mentioned something about uh, being scared if the devil could take his salvation, if he tempted him enough and that kind of thing. Well, Aaron Branson, the youth leader at that time, we're going through the book of Job, and that's what brought all this up because Job went through a lot in his life, but still trusted God through it. And so Aaron read this exact verse, and he basically just put it out. He said, God is the most powerful being to ever exist. You're not going to get more powerful him. There's none who can contend him, that can stand against him, or do anything against him, for that matter. And he said, he says that he has his hands around you, and he says, no one's going to get you out of my hands. What do you have to worry about? What's going to be able to get you out of his hands? Nothing will. Nothing can go against and will be able to take you out of God's hands. No one's powerful enough. No one can stand against. The second point is nothing else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. This sounds like the first one, but it's dealing with a different thing. That one was saying that no one can take us away from God, and this is saying nothing can separate us from the love of God. So it says in Romans 8, 37 uh, through 39, it says, No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this simply puts nothing else in all of creation. This includes us, and this also includes our sin. An illustration that I used was basically God's not going to have you in his hand and realize, like, you're some, like, booger and be like, ew, and just rub you on a wall or something like that. That's not how this works. <laughs> but anyways, so God, nothing can separate us from his love. We can't be a bad enough sinner to where God's just going to cast us out. We can't earn more love than we already have. God loves us perfectly. And he says that nothing's going to separate us from that. A thing that I hear all the time is people struggle with, well, I can't be a Christian because I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. God can never forgive me. He can never love me. And that's just a misunderstanding of, one, you're putting way too much pride into your own sin, and you're misunderstanding God's love. And then, two, I also hear people who are Christians are saying, I'm not a good Christian. I've done this, this, and this, and this. I'm, God can't love me anymore. I've done too many things. He has, he's probably just going to get rid of me. Well, at that point, you're again competing. Is God's love greater or is your sin greater? And I'm so thankful that the Bible says to where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You're never going to be able to sin enough. You're never going to be able to run away from God because he's going to draw you back to himself. 
he'll bring you back, and nothing will be able to separate you from his love. Point number three. He says we are kept for the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. It says, In him you also, uh, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire, a, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So guys, we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We are kept for the glory of Jesus Christ. The reason why he's doing this, the reason why he's preserving us, he's keeping us saved is for his own glory. So the first two reasons was more of dealing with nothing separating us, no one taking us away, and this kind of gets to the purpose behind it. And it's for Jesus' glory, which is a super comforting thing because that takes the work aspect completely out of it. Because it's for his purpose, not our own. We're not in Christ just so we can be the best person that we can be. Christ is making us slowly into himself. He's making us into a people that will be for his glory. The fourth thing, God will finish the work that he started in you. In Philippians 1.6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We are called to salvation, and he's given us everything we need to live out that salvation. He started a work, and he's going to bring it to completion. He's going to finish it. He's going to work in you. He's going to slowly mold you into where you'll be like more like Christ each and each day. Some people have ups and downs. Some people run away and slow down that process. But that doesn't negate the fact that he's going to finish it. If God sets his will out on something, it's as good as done. Even if it's a thousand years in the future from now, it's going to happen. Romans even talks about this in the salvific sense. He said to those he predestined, he also called, and who he also called, he justified, and then glorified. Notice that all those words were past tense. That's the emphasis that it's putting on. He said he was going to do it, and it's as good as done since God said he's going to do it. And even in Isaiah, he even goes down to the detail of there's basically not even going to be a stone unturned that God did not cause. So not only is he in control of just matters of who's going to be the next president or whatever, something like that. He's in control of our salvation. And the comforting thing about this is he's had this plan and this purpose before the ages began. Timothy talks about God's calling on our lives, and he says it's a holy, it's a high standard that we're called to. But he says it's not because of our works, it's according to God's purpose, which is another comforting thing because that means it's not according to my works. I couldn't mess it up. It's completely on God. And then he goes to say, and this was so before the ages began. What a comforting thought about that. God had your plan of salvation before the ages began. He loved you enough to where before the ages began, he was going to send Christ to die for you. He was going to draw you to himself with that message. He was going to give you all the hardships that we've ever had but in those hardships, he was going to show us a love that no one can experience outside of Christ. It is a very powerful thing to know that we are preserved and that we are kept. It is a very powerful thing to know that we are called to salvation. It is a very comforting thing that know, to know that God loves us 
and nothing can separate us from that love. And in that love, we have everything we need to live out the calling. And it's a very securing thing to know that he's going to finish the work that he started. So what should the response be to this? We are called, beloved, and kept. God's given us, he's called us to salvation, given us everything we need, and secures us in that. What do we do with it? Well, I believe that Jude had the correct response to this. That is to become a servant of Christ. He's called us, he's loved us, given us everything that we need to do this, and he secures us. What do I mean by being a servant of Christ? And is someone who daily submits their will to the Lord. Romans 6, verses 16 and 17 say, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of which were uh, committed. So very plainly, you're a slave or a servant of whom you obey. And I know those are two different words, slave and servant. But in the Greek, in the case of Jude and the case of Romans chapter 6, both of those words can be translated and interchangeably. They can be used interchangeably. And so you're a slave or servant of whom you obey. And guys, it is a daily choice to be a servant of God. And it is a hard choice. Joshua even called the people of Israel he said, choose this day to, you, to whom you're going to serve. And basically, he was laid out something else that they could go to, or they, he laid out Christ. He laid out God's way. You can't have both. It's a choice, one or the other. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Being a servant of Christ is dying to yourself daily putting off your wishes and your will for the day, putting off all your desires and taking up and saying, God, I want what you have for me today. I'm going to be the person that you've called me to be for the day. I'm going to live out of the salvation that you've given me. That's what it means to be a servant of Christ. But it is hard to do that every day. It is a hard thing because oftentimes God calls us to things that we're uncomfortable with. And that's a hard thing to go out out of your comfort zone. But he's given us everything that we need to do it. We don't have to worry about the hard things that we're going to face. We don't have to worry about the unknown things that we may have called us to. One of the things that terrifies, had terrified me when I first felt called into ministry is I didn't know where I was going to end up. I love people. I love my people, and that's who you guys are. I loved constantly going to True Life, having a lot of friends here. I have all my families here. And so the thought of maybe being called to a pastor and possibly missions absolutely terrified me. I don't want to give you guys up. I don't want to give this church up, all my friends and family. And so I ran from God for six months, and that was the most miserable six months of my life. And God was faithful and drew me back to himself and made me miserable with myself to where I would come to a point and say, all right, whatever you're calling me to, Whatever life you have for me, it can't be worse than what I'm going through right now. God loved me enough to make me that miserable. He loved me enough to give me everything that I need. He was there in that time bringing the hard stuff on me, which was the most loving thing to do. And so, guys, I commend you. You guys have everything that you need. 
to go and be a servant of Christ. The fact that you are called and that you've been justified and you will be glorified, that should give us motivation to go out because we can understand that we're fighting out of victory, not for victory. The fact that we've been given everything in God's love that we need to live out this life, that should comfort us. Knowing that we have a God that's not only just super far off, but he's, fi- he's right there beside us the whole time, that should give us comfort. And we have security in the fact that we know that he's going to finish the work that he started in us. It is of the utmost importance that we take this and we have the same response as Jude, to become servants of Christ. This is what we're called to. We're called to be servants that would contend contend for their master. That's what the point of Jude is. This is what we're called to. And this may look different for each of us. Maybe you're not a believer, and your first step of becoming a servant is placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and experiencing this salvation. Maybe you've been a believer for a while, and you've walked away. You've walked away from God, and you've walked away from your service that he's called you to. It looks different for each and every one of us, but it's of the utmost importance that we come back and we daily choose to be a servant, to have a response that shows gener- that shows gratefulness for what Christ's done for us. And I'd like for us to pray right now and ask that God would work in each and every one of us, that we would become willing to be servants of Christ. Lord, we just come to you right now, Lord. I just ask that if there's anyone in here who's not a believer, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord, and that you would draw them and guide them in the truth and start a work in their heart today, Lord. I just ask that they would, that you would do as you say, and you would draw all of your people that you've chosen to yourself, Lord. And I just ask that for the people that have been believers and maybe have walked away, Lord, that you would draw them back and make them as miserable as you did me. Lord, and we thank you that the fact that you do is call, call us to salvation, Lord, and that you began that work in every single one of us, Lord, and that you loved us enough to give us your son, and give us everything that we need in him. Lord, and thank you for the security that you give us. Thank you for the fact that your love will never be separated from us. Thank you for your provision that you have your hands around us and that no one can take us away from you. And thank you for being faithful to finishing the work that you began. I just ask that for the rest of this week that we have and for the months following ahead, Lord, that you'd put a fire in us to be your servants that we would be servants that would contend for you. I just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, I really do appreciate you for your time.